I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. That's right. And uh, today, oh, this is super reality for sure. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absol- <laughs> it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Nothing is as you, you see it. <laughs> it is all the That's spirits. <laughs> That's right. It's the spirits. That's that's what it is. That was my tryout to be Scott's assistant in his new magic show. <laughs> well, you're totally in. You're 100% oh, thank in. You. Yep. <laughs> that's great. I could be your assistant, but I'll have trouble fitting in those tiny places. Well, I was just going to say, yeah. I cannot fit in the distracting costumes. I'm going to have to have wizard's <laughs> robes or something. But oh, anyway. man. Yes. Here, fit in this <laughs> tiny, tiny box. And we'll you know, cut me in half or whatever. Yes. Um, yeah, so we're talking about The Prestige, uh, the book The Prestige. It was also a movie by Christopher Nolan. But we're talking about the book uh, The Prestige by Christopher Priest. And it was published in the 90s, I believe. Yep, 1995. And it won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel, which I thought was odd because I yeah. felt like it was a science fiction book. <laughs> I've heard it called science fiction, which did not really check out to me somehow. Mm-hmm. Though I realize by the strict code it does. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like science fiction, though. Yeah. And then I've heard it called fantasy. And I'm like, uh, not really checking out as fantasy either. And to me, it is a kind of like a thriller, mystery, gothic style novel. Mm. Yeah, It fits in those like old Victorian Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind mm-hmm. of feel. Dracula. Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of It's that dark similarity dark to I mean stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. So I get those categorizations, but somehow they don't work for me, those other ones. So mm-hmm. yeah. It's just it itself is an enigma. <laughs> <laughs> an enigma wrapped in mystery. That's right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, too good. Too good. <laughs> yeah. Well, very luckily for me, I found both the main characters in the movie so unlikable, mm-hmm. even though it was Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman, who both of whom I adore, um, that I immediately forgot everything I possibly could except David Bowie as Tesla, because who could forget that? <laughs> and um, some stuff with a lot of lightning going around. And yeah. I forgot almost everything else except one key element and it wasn't the big key element so yeah. as it was going along i was reading it kind of fresh mm. in did some you, ways did you rewatch the movie no okay i, I was just not. curious but, if you did you well, were thinking about it yeah rose rose loves the movie and she and i had a long conversation after i finished the book because she was interested to see where the book was different and it turns out it was significantly different in yeah. A lot of the surrounding stuff, though not in the main essence of what the mystery was. Yes. But I was surprised mm-hmm. at how different it was. But she said that she'd read that the author really enjoyed the movie and was saying, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that. And, mm. You know. Yeah, yeah. You can certainly understand why Christopher Nolan uh, made the choices that he did. I think it was him and his brother, interestingly Probably. enough, who wrote the well, uh, um, script. I say they interestingly enough because that's like that's 
it's similar to the plot and stuff. <laughs> the of, doubles. Yeah. <laughs> so many doubles. And I'm not just talking about main people. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. Well, I will say this. This uh, got a modern day, it's not, a, it's, do they call it an envelope? Framing Framework. story. Yeah. Framing story. Yeah. And the guy instantly is going, I think I have a twin somewhere that I don't know about. And so... Twins are instantly put right in front of your eyes, and you can't quit thinking about them the whole time as you're reading about these magic tricks that are being done. Mm. So, um, to say twins is not giving much away. No, no, it isn't. Although yeah. there's questions about twins the whole way through, so nobody ever knows what the hell's going on. <laughs> Excuse the language, but yeah, absolutely. it's justified, I That's believe. That's all very true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so this book, um, it, it opens with, uh, two descendants of 19th century magicians. You know, this is the modern thing, uh, framing story. And the two 19th century magicians are Rupert Angier and Alfred Borden. And um, the the people that we're introduced to first are uh, their great-grandchildren. And um, they are looking at journals that these folks wrote <laughs> and um so the the central plot really though is the the about these magicians is the bulk of the story so you have a little bit in this modern time where they talk about um this and they're they've got the journals and then suddenly we're reading alfred borden's journal and then there's a little bit of the framing story and then now we're reading rupert angier's story and then uh, it wraps up. And those two, uh, Angier and Alfred Borden, are prestidigitators, which is like the best word ever. And I can't believe you could say it so well. It just rolled right <laughs> off your tongue. That's good stuff. I love it. And um, yeah, so they're, they're magicians in, um, in England, mainly England, although they travel other places in the 19th century. You know, this is right when Houdini was doing stuff and... Um, but Houdini is not mentioned in here. Um, but uh, Tesla is, like you said. But there, there's a lot of cool details about, you know, I say cool details, and you may be rolling your eyes over there, about the magic <laughs> itself and, you know, stage magicians and and how, you know, there's like the code of conduct kind of and um, knowing the secrets, the secrets for their tricks and coming up with new illusions and uh trying to best each other so they end up in a in a big feud robert rupert angier and alfred borden and that's the key or that's what drives their whole lives basically there's like this obsession with each other trying to best each other trying to tear each other down um as they move forward in their careers and um that is generally what it's about is there anything you'd like to add on the the non-spoilery piece? Well, I will say, reading this is when I discovered I do not care about magic or magicians. <laughs> they I leave me cold. I love it. I, I love I, it. I didn't know that, but I could feel it mm -hmm. through the ether, Scott. <laughs> it was coming to me just in my mind as I was reading. There was a thought yeah. that said... Just keep going. You're it's incredible. So worth it. Incredible. And uh, yeah. yes, and this is playing off of the framework story where, um, like I said, it opens up and this guy says, I think I've always had a twin in my head. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, 
So I do not care about magic or magicians. I think I liked them a lot when I was a kid and younger. But once I discovered, basically, I'd, I'd see people going in here, so you do these tricks and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, every single thing. Not that I thought it was real magic, but I just kind of at some point got to the point where I went, well, it's all a cheating, so I don't care. Mm -hmm. That's not my yeah. thing. And then also... I believe we have registered previously on this podcast how I feel about books that stop and explain things in great detail. <laughs> yes. Not my and thing. And I apologize <laughs> profusely. No. It's, it's okay. I was reading the book and not listening, so I could just skim right over those parts. Now, Very part good. of the problem may be obvious when um, I say... I'm not positive about how this person felt or if that thing happened like this, because that might have been buried in the mm. middle of describing how this trick worked with cabinets yes. or whatever. <laughs> and so I might have missed a few details, but yeah. I feel like usually everybody was just so excited by what they were doing. They had to stop and tell you everything mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. So, however, for people who are like me, I was not going to do another Lonesome Dove situation. <laughs> I was going to read this book and I actually enjoyed it pretty well because it's written really skillfully in the style of those times. So like Victorian type books or, or like I mentioned with uh, Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula or something like that, it kind of felt a little more like Dracula because everyone's telling it from their own point of view. It's epistolary yeah. in that sense. I love, uh, I love yeah. Yeah, that, that the allusions to Dracula, like um, uh, Tesla on the mountain. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, yeah. gothic stuff. Yeah, loved it. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, what I could do, though, is appreciate the themes of the people and what they were trying to do and what motivated them. And also, what was really interesting is reading one person's journal and you're like, wow, okay, this, this guy seems so nice and that other guy's a huge jerk. But then, of course, the other novel and go, or the other journal and go, oh, hold on. This guy's nice and that guy's a huge jerk. Wait a minute. <laughs> They're still being magicians and just telling things from their own point of view. I mm -hmm. get it. So, um, all that stuff was really well done. Very interesting. There were a few things about the plot that we can talk about later where I was like, this did not check out to me. Mm -hmm. But most of it was, it was a very interesting look at obsession, rivalry, um, thinking just about yourself and following the wrong motivations. I mean, this is like a how to not live for Catholics, mm -hmm. yes. essentially. It's, uh, Read this and do the opposite. Yeah, it's the, the eclipse of self over everything else. Yeah, and it's mm. not to say one one of the things that was laudable is they both wanted to be the very best at their craft that they could be. But what motivated them to do that was so, um, as you say, selfish, self-aggrandizing, mm. um, or anger-filled, yeah. thoughts of revenge, mm. that it always went wrong. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, in the end. So it's just kind of interesting to look at it from that point of view. It's a perfect example and the story is well told, and there's enough mystery in there that I was left going, wait, what's happening? Since I didn't remember a lot of the movie. Hmm. Yeah. And I've read uh, reviews on Goodreads where people were saying, oh, I saw the movie and then found out there was a book, and they're different enough that they thoroughly enjoyed reading the book also. So hmm. just 
yeah. throw that out there too. Agree. I agree with that for sure. There's enough of yeah. a difference that they're, and they're really nice compliments to each other. Um, and, right. and it's very interesting to see what Christopher Nolan, the choices that he made um, in order to make it filmable and uh, in order to make it a story on film versus um, what the novelist Christopher Priest chose to do um, that worked in the novel. And um, when you when you watch the movie, there are some things in there you say, okay, well, that's an interesting choice, but you can you can really see why he would have done that, you know, for reasons of, you know, this needs to fit into two hours. Um, you know, if I have this character be this way, then this, you know, so it's like the tone, the motives, all of that stuff exists in both places. Um, mm-hmm. But the details, some of the details are different. Mm-hmm. So great. Yeah, I'd love to move into spoiler territory now because that's it. where I, the awesome kinda, stuff I, is. <laughs> yeah, I've edged in there a little already. <clears throat> yeah, but, absolutely yeah. great. Okay, so okay. Th- this is one of those books that if you honestly know nothing about this, I would recommend reading this before you hear us talk about it because we're going to reveal some stuff here <laughs> that is fun to have revealed as you read it. So, <laughs> the magician's secrets are becoming unveiled. That's right. The secrets are the thing. I love it. Yes. So, um, yeah, um, so Borden, th- this was really interesting. You know, so the whole feud started in the book, um, which differs from the movie, but um, in the book, Borden, the Borden book. starts to, uh, he wants to disrupt these fake seances that Angier is doing. Um, and it, it's like, you know, so he's seeing them as, you know, charlatans, right? Even though, you know, he wants to become a magician himself. And it, it is, you know, I'm sympathetic to that because um, that, that is that is kind of cruel, right? You know, they're, they're in there doing a seance for someone who just had someone pass away. And they're doing tricks. Um, you know, they, they describe three things that, that he does, Angier does, was doing at that time. Um, and Borden was offended by that and was disrupting it because he realized that this is just an illusion. He knew it and he was just there. I'm just going to destroy this. Um, and then he, Borden actually pulled away and I thought this was interesting. He actually pulled away at that time and said, well, maybe the, he is comforting those folks by lying to them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just thought that it was a very interesting dynamic. I was just curious about how you felt about all that. Because it's like this this whole feud in the book started with Borden trying to destroy something that he saw as unethical. Yeah. And then and he said, but this is against the magician's code completely, you know? Well, and I was th- as you were speaking, I was thinking about, um, see, so... So much of what goes on here is interesting because both people are magicians. Magicians deliberately misdirect people so they can do something else that's surprising. Hmm. Both of them are busy misinterpreting what the other one does instantly. Hmm. And so Borden very carefully explains the magician's code of conduct. Now, he's codified it. And it's kind of this unspoken idea that the magician's going to fool you and the audience goes in wanting to be fooled. 
which is the conduct that I've broken out of by going, I don't want to be fooled. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But many people like you love it. Why not fool me? I want to see wh- how you can pull this off. So he says, that's the code of conduct. Mm. You're willing to be fooled. I'm going to fool you. I, if I can do it well, we're all very happy. So he looks at it as kind of an arrangement that way, an understood arrangement. So he sees that Anger is breaking the code of conduct by um, these people haven't agreed to be fooled. Right. They want the truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Very good, yeah. when you see what Anger thinks, Anger doesn't <laughs> understand anything about this code of conduct. He doesn't, that's not what he's in it for. He's mm-hmm. in it, he's fascinated at a young age, like Borden was, and says, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm going to practice and practice and practice. They both come to it accidentally. They're both good at it. But his, he wants to do it because he likes the praise hmm. and the people going, how did you do that? But it's not because he sees it as some kind of a contract. He, he needs the money, man. I mean, he's <laughs> from a well-off family, a well-up family, but he's not being allowed to have any money. So he needs a way to earn a living. So he's not only doing it because he wants money, but he wants people's praise. And when he does it, his explanation in his diary is that he feels he needs the money, but he also feels like he will bring them comfort. So the understanding that Alfred comes to later is actually what's motivating him. So he's coming at it from much more pure motives Mm -hmm. and um, not stopping to think about the long-term consequences, which is what Alfred's always thought about based on his code of conduct. And Alfred actually, in telling us the story that I think cannot be skipped over, of um, Ching Ling Fu. Yes, this is gorgeous. Yeah, love this. The Asian, or I guess he's Chinese magician. Mm -hmm. He's explaining everything about the whole novel. And he says, this explains everything about the whole novel. (laughs) So, um, because basically, these two magicians live their lives by totally different motivations they don't understand each other at all, but they're judging each other by their own motivations. Now, how often do we do that? Mm, yeah. This goes back to Ted Lasso, the last episode, where we were talking about be curious, not judgmental. Mm-hmm. They're curious about how to do the tricks, but they're never curious about each other. Yes, well put. That's There's mm-hmm. a huge problem there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, Ching Ling Fu is a magician who in order to do his greatest trick, has to spend the rest of his life (laughs) pretending to have a certain condition that makes the trick on stage seem valid. Yeah, so he's... uh, I'd love to explain this. (laughs) No, please please explain it, because I was just thinking it has to be explained for people to understand what's going on. So, So he does this trick on stage... This Chinese magician. He does a trick on stage where he makes a fishbowl appear full of water. Um, it's a fairly sizable fishbowl. And um, it's like, you know, well, where on earth is he going to hide that thing, right? You know, so, you know, people will look at that and say, you know, how, how is that even possible? So he, he shuffles when he walks. Um, and he, on the stage, you know, he looks like a frail person. And that, that is the illusion because he actually holds 
throughout the entire act until the uh, climax of the act is when he does this big trick. He is actually holding that fishbowl between his legs and shuffling around, you know, because he's wearing sort of a, a dress that a, a Chinese, Chinese person would robes, wear. Right, yeah. Chinese robes all the way down to the bottom. So you can't see his legs, but he's he shuffles around the stage, you know, the whole time. And that entire time, he has this fishbowl between his legs, which takes great strength to be able to do. And in order to maintain that illusion, he shuffles all the time. He makes himself look frail even when he's not on stage. If he's getting into, uh, you know, they showed uh, in, the, in the movie, they actually showed him getting into a um, carriage. And he's shuffling. He, he looks old and frail all the time. And that is a lie because he is not. He is actually has great strength. But he, in order not to reveal the secret of the illusion, he lives his entire life making himself look frail. He does it all the time so that no one will ever see him and figure out the trick. So that is a level of obsession that is stunning, right? And it yes. is it is how Borden lives his life, it turns out. He's mm-hmm. doing the, a very similar thing. Um, not the exact thing, but a similar thing. And I, I thought, uh, you know, I, I really like Penn and Teller. You know Penn and Teller, oh, uh-huh. the, the magicians? Mm-hmm. And Teller mm-hmm. wrote an article one time that I kept. I've, I've had it for years. It was in the Smithsonian and he, he lists things, you know, here's some principles that magicians employ, you know, so this is how long I've loved, you know, just this magic stuff. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't ever try to do it myself, but I, th- I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. But he's, uh, number two on his list is make the secret a lot more trouble than the trick seems worth. Because you would never imagine that that Chinese magician is not frail. And you would never imagine that someone would go through his life living that way. In order for a trick to work and look impressive. But it's true, right? The magicians mm-hmm. do that. Magicians do that stuff. Um, you know, whether it's as far as these guys do. But it's just saying, if, if they do a trick on stage and your brain is you know, like, like, how do you figure that? What? How did they do that? You know, and your brain won't go to where it's like, oh, there's no way that they would do X, Y, Z. Because that's crazy. But maybe it's maybe that's exactly what they did, you know. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just really interesting. So Borden is living his life, and I don't know if we can reveal that right now. I guess we're in yeah, spoiler what, territory. In, yeah, talk so about it. So they're twins, right? He's actually a twin. So he right. does this amazing trick called the teleported man, in which he he um, has a rubber ball, and there's two cabinets that are separated, I don't know, maybe 10 feet apart on the stage. And um, he opens the door to one cabinet, bounces a ball towards the other one, walks into the cabinet, and then he walks out of the other cabinet in time to catch the ball that was just bounced over to him. I thought he flipped his hat in the air. Um, There's a whole long thing about Angier going to watch and seeing him flip his hat in the air. Okay, I'm, I'm conflating the movie and the... Yeah, I'm sorry about that. In the in the movie, he's got a ball. Ah. <clears throat> so, but you're right. But this it is, is even in, better because he's got a top hat. Exactly. And he yeah. flips it up into the rafters, mm-hmm. steps in, 
I mean, the ball's just as good, I'm yes. sure. <laughs> no, but no. they're probably a lot harder to do in a movie. Right. And, and when he steps out, the hat's coming down and he catches it. Mm-hmm. Because Angier was saying that one time he watched it and he flipped it up and it didn't come out of the rafters or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he kind of smiled and went, oops, and held his hand up again and it came out. So uh-huh. That's um, cool. he's like, he was a good showman, you know? Yeah, you're right. So yeah. anyway, sorry. Um, no, that's perfect. Yeah. Thank you. So in my head, I, I can see the film. Um, well, both of them are yeah. good ways to illustrate it. Either right. Way, yeah. Cause it's instantaneous. So of course this drives Angier crazy because he's like, how on earth did he do that? Because also after when he is stepping out of the other thing, the first cabinet collapses, right? Yes, right. Or the first whatever he's wardrobe type thing he's going into collapses. So it's like no one's hidden in there. There's nothing left. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it happens so fast that it's just but, – but it illustrates, you know, what Teller was saying in his thing. Um, Angier – I can't remember. Gosh, see now I'm, I'm confusing the book and the and the and the thing again Uh-oh. because I can't remember which one of them said, "Oh, he's a twin. He's got to be twins." And that I, was the assistant to Angier. He yeah, said, but, "Well, he's mm-hmm. clearly twins." Right. And yeah. Angier said, "No, I've seen exactly. There's no way. I've seen yeah. this reporter came. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures. It's impossible." Right. So they went and watched, and the he said, "Oh, I see." I'm just watching um, Borden do the trick, but my, you know, his assistant is looking at everything else. Yeah, he's looking, he's looking at the behind cabinets, the audience. Yep. He's looking at the cabinets. He's looking at the curtain. He goes, "Oh, I should be doing that, but I couldn't take my eyes off Borden." <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of one of the interesting things about the characters. I thought was um, Angier says several times. I was just never smart enough to figure out people's magic tricks. <laughs> my wife could do it. Yeah. My assistant could do it. They always had to explain it to me. And one time the wife, Julia, is saying, oh, well, we need to do this. And he's like, oh, no, but this is what happened on, on stage when I saw it. And she's like, right, because here's how it works. <laughs> and he went, oh, <laughs> one more time. I couldn't yes. get it. And so it's like. You know, he enjoys doing the tricks. Mm-hmm. He enjoys the applause, but he's not like Borden, who was continually thinking up his own new tricks. Because yeah, that's yeah. the competitive element that all the magicians have. We only see two, but all right. the magicians have it. And you get the feeling that Angier is a better showman, and right. Borden is the better technical person. Right, which mm-hmm. is, I know, an element of the movie, because Rose was talking about that and saying, you know, he he's not a very good showman. I was like, yeah, but in the book, he's a perfectly great showman because both uh, Angier and Borden have their moments of height and then dropping down into relative unknown as the other one has a better trick, you know. So yeah. they both have moments of elevation and uh, then lowering as they come up with a better trick or whatever. They can carry the showmanship part off just fine, as the hat flip shows us or the yeah. ball bouncing, depending on what you're thinking of. So, right. but, um, so one of the things that we started off talking about, though, was obsession mm-hmm. and the price to be paid for the magic trick. And so Ching Ling Fu is the example that is put out in clear public. See, nothing up my sleeve, Mm -hmm. you know? And then of course, what's being hidden is there are the twins. So one twin, I think is, uh, well, they kind of act like, um, actually 
that um, the twins go back and forth between the wife and the mistress. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, so they're living even to their okay, wife so and mistress. so don't do that. Yeah. Ugh. Yes, yeah, so don't do that for sure. But yeah, yeah but that, that, that's the thing. It's like, you know, the, the, the shuffling that they're doing, quote unquote, is that they're actually living as one person. Um, even right. their wife and mistress don't know. And it's clear that they are different people. They actually talk to each other in the journal, which is fascinating. Um, and uh, it seems that one is in love with the wife and one is in love with the mistress. And um, go ahead. The journal is not actually very clear. If you don't know what's going on, I was reading those parts mm-hmm. of the journal because they're very brief. And it's like, I didn't talk about this. I did do that, though. I, yeah. I, I, I think that that have was now read stuff. what I yeah. wrote. And I was like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. What's happening? And it's like, I'm, <laughs> I give myself permission to continue. You know, that's it. Um, and it, it, I thought it was great because, yeah, if you were reading it and didn't know you would be like, what the heck? And I, I remember the first time I listened to this, this was an audiobook that I listened to years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simon Vance was awesome. And, yeah, um, I listened to a little and he is excellent. Yeah, so. and, and that would come up and he would be like, what did he just say? He just said, yeah. I, and then I, you know, so you're like clear, well, something weird's going on here. And I think it's delightfully odd. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, a person encountering it without knowing would have the reaction that you, you just said and say, what the heck is this mean? Um, and I think that that's cool. Um, because they, they are, they both call themselves I, and they're acting like one person, but they're different people. There's, they're not the same. They're genetically yeah. the same, but they're different. And you know? I don't. Think okay. Let me just put it this way: it was never clear to me, other than those little moments, mm-hmm. where um, that it wasn't just one person who wrote the journal. Whether it was Albert or Frederick, I assume Albert because he was the main front man, so to speak. Um, it never seemed that way. And then it's, it's interesting because all through this book, there's doubles of everything. So there's the twins, but uh, Rupert and um, Alfred or Albert, I guess, are doubles of each other. Mm-hmm. It's just how are they approaching things differently so it's to contrast and compare. You have things like um, Julia, Rupert's wife, who he loves so much, and I think the other one's wife is Sarah, who you almost never hear about, but he's devoted to her. Albert Borden is devoted to her. Yeah. And um, so, but at the same time, Rupert's devoted to Julia. I was never so shocked as when he went to the U.S., and just went, well, the, the family is gone. The children are gone. Uh, my assistant is gone. And I was like, was there a fire? What happened? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. she was like a second piece of him. Yeah. She right. was almost like the doubling part that allowed him to be able to go on with what he was doing. And he's like, because I met this person and really know what love is now. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, Rupert, I'm so disappointed in you. You're so shallow. And he's yes. like, later, he's going, well, that wasn't really love. But now I'm in love with this person named Olive or <laughs> Olivia, whichever name it was. And like, she's amazing. And I was like, oh, you yeah. are not the man I thought Dude, you were. what are you doing? Poor right. Julia. <laughs> Julia was the best part of you. That's right. Um, so, and then later he ha- he's like, oh, crap, I made a huge mistake and takes her back. But so it's um, interesting looking at these 
people where it's almost like he's two people in that sense, even though it's just one person. Mm-hmm. But he's acting kind of like the twins were, the Borden twins, with the mistress and the wife. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not expressing it very well, but the way the author is able to kind of take these kinds of behavior and give it to both people, but from different motivations and different angles. Yeah. And you see how you feel about it one way or the other, um, depending on if you see it in real time, so to speak, or just told to you later is really interesting. In all cases, it's destructive. Yes, agreed. This behavior (laughs) is so destructive. And um, there is no real reward to their rivalry, to their obsession. Because at different points, you know, it goes past, I'll show this guy, and it becomes its own goal. Kind of like the Chinese magician with his bowl of water Mm -hmm. or his fishbowl or whatever it is and so he has to live his whole life sublimated to this other thing how rewarding is that yeah is that very not very yeah if you look at these guys in the end of their lives you know yeah um yeah and that is a life lesson um again it's you know what is at the top of your mountain hopefully it's not david bowie Although that would be cool if he was on the way. Uh, yes, yeah, very, when, very good. He is on the way. Will, we know that. I will say when Tesla's giving you a lecture about obsession, mm, yes. you have to know you've gone too far. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that that's fascinating stuff. So, so Angie becomes obsessed now with figuring out how Borden does this. And he's got his own blinders on. He He... He's like, you know, he refuses to believe that it's a twin. Um, you know, he just doesn't see how that's even possible. Um, because, again, Borden is being pretty darn careful about, you know, nobody sees these twins together ever. Right. So, um, so through some, I don't know, subterfuge, there was a, you know, a woman that was passed between them, you know, that uh, was trying to figure out secrets and stuff. But anyway, she gave... She gave Angie just one word on a piece of paper that said Tesla on it. And as the secret to Borden's illusion. Yeah, which was a lie. Which was a lie. And he took that, found Tesla, went all the way to Colorado. (laughs) And is like, okay, clearly what's happened here. This makes more sense than it being a twin. Clearly what's happened here is that Tesla has made him a device that makes this work. And well, it's not he goes that to it Tesla to do that. Sense. Mm-hmm. He had had it proven by that journalist. It could not possibly be a twin. Later on you find out Borden sent the journalist probably. Right. Yep. Cuz there's no other reason for that journalist to do that, but he thought of the journalist as being a neutral party cuz he's just reporting on each of them for his paper. Yeah, right. So he's had that Taken off the table. Mm-hmm. There's no other answer possible. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and that's part of why, you know, make the secret a lot more trouble than it's worth. Mm-hmm. All this misdirection and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it's just amazing. So, um, so yeah. So he goes to Tesla and says, hey, I need you to build me a thing. And he realizes not long after meeting Tesla that um, he, he said in his journal, it's pretty clear that uh, Borden has never been here. 
mm-hmm. you know, so he, you know, Tesla has never met Borden. So, um, but yet he kept going and, uh, paid him a bunch of money. Tesla paid Tesla a bunch of money to come up with a device that Tesla thought, you know, Hey, I think I can do this. You know, <laughs> it's just like, make me a, an electrical thing that will allow me to teleport. And, um, yeah. And, and, and that's just super interesting to me too, because I know, uh, uh, electricity is my job. I do a lot of that. And, um, so I've always been interested in Tesla and Thomas Edison and, um, all the stuff that was going on. And when electricity was new, you would have things like electric belts, you know, it's like everything they were putting electricity in everything because, you know, it was just people going crazy, uh, thinking that this was a solution to all kinds of things. And it was being used for things that, you know, just it's pointless to use it. Um, you know, people thought it was healthy. People thought it was dangerous, you know, all, all kinds of things, um, were going on. I love to look at some of the ads back then <laughs> about these products that were coming out. Yeah. Didn't they put it in mattresses and things? Oh yeah. It was and just, like, oh, was this is going to make everywhere. some yeah. things a lot better. It's going to enhance your life force, you know, or, That's or whatever, it. you know, and just like, holy cow. Yeah. This <laughs> That's is great. So elegantly put. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So then Tesla, who is an odd fellow, um, says, you know, yeah, I'm going to try to make this, this happen, um, because he needs the money. And, uh, of course he's intrigued as well. And then when he, he actually does come up with a device, but it has a side effect. (laughs) And this is, this is where there's a difference. Uh, I think the biggest difference between the movie and the, um, in the book, you know, so what the side effect is, is he actually gets it to work. But what happens is, is that a shell of the man, exists uh it's called they called it the prestige right it's like the after effect of the of the trick or the uh side effect or um i don't know uh so when he when he when he gets in this machine and he duplicates that's what happens is he duplicating himself but in the book the duplicate is not a hundred percent him it's like an empty shell of him and well, because he's alive, right? Not like the pe- not like the bar of metal. The bar of metal is just a bar of metal. Now, in in the movie, it appears that when he makes a duplicate, the duplicate is him, a hundred percent. Well, that's the book because the trick is mm-hmm. when they flicker the electricity or whatever, and the new one shows up, it's him. Because he'll say, "I came back from death again," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. and the other body, the other is just the body, and right. it's been dropped down below the floor. That's the old one. Otherwise, the new one can't stand up. That's what I mean by an empty shell, right? Right, but I thought you said the new one was an empty. You were, oh, oh. I think saying the new one was an empty shell. Okay, I, I apologize. So I, I feel so I feel like the difference between the movie and this is that in the movie. You have two Angiers that are mm-hmm. alive. Right. And in the book, you have two Angiers, one of whom is an empty shell. Yeah, which is kind of interesting in terms of being a way to show you that um, the price that's being paid is you've got to die. Yes. In the movie, mm-hmm. they're showing that more, more obviously than in the book. He can say, and then I came back from death. Right. 
you know, so it's like he had to die to do this. Yeah. And Um, I I think, you know, I I think that that's a significant difference too, because um, when I think about the movie, um, that's a a big hole for me because it's like, if he, if he did that one time and he's got himself uh, and alive himself right there, then he's now got what Borden has. If he left that person oh, alive, just, and oh then my gosh, he could so just right. he could just do any of those tricks real easy, and he would only have to do it one time, you know. Oh my gosh, you just yes. So uh huh. And in the yep. book, that can't happen Who because cares it is an right. empty shell that's left, yeah. and the empty shell just uh, can't that doesn't help him at all. But he just yeah, has to collect these empty shells and, and, and take put them, them to the home vault. Exactly. But it's interesting because he doesn't destroy them. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't cremate them. Yeah. Uh, they're in the vault, each with their own little slot. So he's honoring the body that's left behind. However, and I've seen people call this, uh, when I was looking through reviews and things, I saw people call this cloning. And I was like, it's, I don't think it is. It's not cloning. Um, cloning is growing the same i mean the movie would be considered cloning i guess but not but when you're cloning something the soul isn't duplicated like that yeah and that's the interesting thing about the the book is like you have one soul and two bodies one Mm -hmm. animating force two bodies and you only get one right and um that's what that's what causes the accident so now borden sees this trick and and it's better than his because you know, Angie is appearing like in the audience or on a rail in the balcony. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's able to to project that wherever he wants to. And um, so Borden is like, well, how on earth is he doing that? Because he's not a twin. He doesn't have my secret, right? So right. he's like, this is crazy. You know, so he's trying to figure it out and he, he realized it's an apparatus and then he goes down and just this incredibly mean fierce thing he turns the power off on the thing no, mid-trick no. no i thought it was because he thought the generator was going to catch on fire it could be but he he turned it off during the trick which split on yeah. in half right well yeah but i think mm. i didn't feel like the motivation was mean but maybe it okay. was but okay. um i thought it was just he was like oh my gosh this can't go on and look at this one anyway it doesn't mm. matter um yes you're you're left with a half man on each side one half right is so now <laughs> kind of it's like, like an incomplete thing and now he is split in between two people and it's it, it reminds me of that star trek episode where kirk was split into two Absolutely. Um, it, it's not it's not like <laughs> the good half and a bad half, but you have you have two two Angiers and neither of them are physically able to continue. Uh, well, one of them actually is more corporeal than the other one, and that one one is more ghostly. And yeah, the original one is still mostly himself, yeah. but he doesn't feel now quite he's right. Diseased, he gets tired right. easily, and there's no reason. And then he gets all these cancers. And yeah, his body can't fight horribly painful the sickness and stuff, right? And then yes, and then you have the one that's like a ghost, mm-hmm. and um, who eventually I learned if I really concentrated, I could pick things up, and I could, <laughs> you know this and that and everything. Yeah. And I was like, um, it was an interesting idea. Because I was interested in the idea of the ghost when Borden's attacked by the ghost. And I was also interested in the idea that Borden is so pitiful 
when he's attacked and looks older and everything. And Angier suddenly has pity for him yeah, and has mercy and leaves, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I liked that. He sees his humanity. He finally sees him as a human being, mm-hmm. not just an opponent. Right. You know, so um, yeah. Yeah. So you've got two, two older folks now looking back on their lives and, their current feud and wondering what the heck they've done is, but you know, never, interesting. Yeah, and it's funny because both of them would say, I tried so hard at one point. I said, let's stop this. And they wouldn't stop it. Mm-hmm. Each of them is saying that about the other one. Yeah. And, um, you know, at, and because they're feeling the remorse at a time when the person they're extending uh, friendship to is in a bad place for whatever reason their hand of friendship is ignored on both sides. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was kind of interesting is that um, both people, you know, they're doing an unreliable narrative because like I said, you're reading, you're going, Oh yeah. And he's tried to make good and he's tried to do this. And look at the mean things Angier was doing to ruin his performance and take revenge and everything, standing up and giving his secrets away and all this stuff. And then you're reading Angier's journal and he's saying, and then this got started getting done to me all the time. <laughs> well, yeah. Borden didn't mention that, and I don't know if it was the twin or him. Mm-hmm. But all this stuff was being done to Angier, and Angier's not ever mentioning what he did. He just was, I was taking revenge. Yeah. Not going to dwell on that. <laughs> so there's a lack of honesty with themselves also. And I yeah. know that Borden is specific. He's like, I'm going to tell you all my secrets. Well, he never really tells his yeah, secrets. Yeah, and isn't that that's something, right? It's just like you just can't do it. Yeah. You know? But he also he doesn't look deep enough. He wants that to be amazing forever. <laughs> right. But he doesn't look deep enough in himself mm-hmm. also. Agreed. To yeah. see what's who he is and what's there and Rupert does more of it because of his experience of being split in half, but he never really does it either. And so um what this makes you think is um for one thing, about their identities, they don't know who they are. Mm. They've built up this story about themselves based completely on me, 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 me. Even when they're being nice, uh, like, I have to have Julia, I'm going back, I'm so sorry I did this awful stuff. They're still not telling the whole story to themselves. Mm-hmm. And even in their journals. And so, how can you fully be who you're meant to be mm-hmm. if, if you don't even look at who you are in the first place? I mean, it's like saying, I'm going to fix up this street, but I'm never going to examine what, what does it need. Does it have potholes? Does it not have the right materials on it? What's going on? Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that's, I guess, not their goal. But as a Catholic, I just look at this and see... What a waste. I, I agree with you. You know, it's like they're, they claim to have this community, you know, returning to the community concept again, yeah. but they don't. They're really alone. And they're alone because of their secrets, you mm-hmm. know. And that, again, is a metaphor for sin. Um, you know, sin yeah. and things that we hold and that are actually become walls between us and other people or walls between us and God, Right. Um, just this holding of this secret, you know, I've got this secret and I can't let it out, um, is corrosive. You know, it's, 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 
it's destroying you, you know? And um, that's what happens to both these people. I mean, they're, they're just obsessed with the secret and keeping it. And the know? desire for vengeance. Right. And they just like nurture it. You know what I mean? When yeah. what we ought to be doing is revealing it or, you know, confessing it. So what this made me think of is Cain and Abel. Mm. Yeah. And of course, Abel is not either one of these characters. He is... We don't know much about him, but he seems to be a good guy because he brings the first fruit, you know. Um, He brings the best. And Cain is mad, and God finds him. This is something that's so rarely brought up, and once I noticed it, it's to me one of the most important parts of the whole story, is Cain's all angry, and God says, Why are you angry? Why are you dejected? If you act rightly, you will be accepted. But if not, sin lies in wait at the door. Its urge is for you, but you can rule over it. Hmm. So before he murders Abel, God finds, comes and finds him and encourages him to do the right thing. Yeah. Let go of your anger. Do the right thing. You can master these feelings. Hmm. And these are all the things that these guys never even consider. And they're never encouraged in it by anybody that loves them. We mostly see Julia and Oliver Olivia. She changes from one to the other at some point. Um, who's the mistress who winds up with um, one of the Borden boys. And, uh, <laughs> but they're both just kind of encouraging them in their careers and their, their tricks and everything. So then it's shown with this framework of this modern story where it turns out what happened was Andrew, Borden's great-grandson, had accidentally been killed when he was about two or three years old with in the Tesla machine. And what Kate saw was that, who is Angier's great-granddaughter, because their parents were arguing. Both their fathers were arguing. And her father kills the little boy callously just throws him down and it turns out what happened was it was the tesla machine and i don't know why it was turned on and what was going on (laughs) i guess they were looking at it but Mm -hmm. it turns out nikki is the little boy's name who's killed and he winds up i guess being duplicated kate doesn't see that part Mm -hmm. and um he is the person who's always felt like he's had somebody speaking in his head, a twin who cares about him and all this kind of thing, but he could never find evidence of an identical twin. He's been given up for adoption, all these things. And he doesn't care about his family. He's perfectly happy with his adopted family. He's, you mm-hmm. know, like the ideal adopted person, very happy. And so when all this is brought up, he's like, I'm going to do this because maybe I can find out about my twin and I feel called to come to this place. And there's kind of a little, uh, this religious cult thing, which I was so glad it just seemed to be a deception because I was like, religious cults, that's all we need. <laughs> and, um, but so when he goes down to the vault and he finds the body of Nikki, which has not decayed or anything because it's some weird effect of the mm-hmm. Tesla effect that these bodies don't decay. It enhanced his life force. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> But she couldn't appreciate till he was a man. But anyway, um, so he uh, winds up picking up Nikki's body and he says, and then all the thoughts went away or whatever. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He's mm-hmm. dead. 
This is that empty shell. Are you telling me that some little portion of your soul remained in him and that's what was calling out to you? Because what about these hundred or so of these other bodies mm-hmm. that are Angier's body? Yeah. What's happening? Mm-hmm. And then so I found that very unsatisfying. I was mm-hmm. like, nope, because then he drops Nikki or something and he screams, Nikki and his head screams or something. I'm just like, I don't care for any of this. I feel like it was ill-conceived. He didn't think through what he was doing, the author. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because then there's Angier, the original Angier, who had transported himself into the vault, hoping he would either get sent into a body and be able to bring it to life and live again, or he would just die when he went into a dead body. He's like, mm-hmm. either way, this has got to end. Yeah. And then he's hanging around down there. And I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. What do you mean to tell me that these bodies never age, even if there's a soul in them? <laughs> What's going? No, I don't. I need an Hercule Poirot to sit me down and walk <laughs> me through the details. And I don't think the author ever bothered to go that far. Yeah. Unless mm-hmm. Scott, you can pull back the curtain and give me the answer <laughs> to all of it. I certainly cannot. Because um, oh, okay. yeah, it, it, it really <laughs> just turns into this gothic ghost story thing. You know what I yeah, mean? Just fall apart. And here you've got this. You know, this Angier's great grandchildren down there. And, uh, you know, he's there. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. I thought you guys would come for me. Yeah. Um, you're a board, <laughs> so aren't you, is back. what he says, you know. Right. And then at the end, he just walks off, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it just becomes this, you know, just this ghostly, gothic, you know, in my mind's eye, you know, all these racks with these bodies on them. And, yeah. you know, somehow slightly alive, you know, who knows. Um, but, yeah. It's definitely mysterious. It. Yep. It is very And maybe that's sloppy. what makes it a, a world fantasy winner. I don't know. I mean, the fact that this becomes fantasy, but it's like everything, all the magic in here has explanation. And then um, the, you know, the Tesla thing is not unlike a Star Trek thing that might happen. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, right. You know, just describing it. Oh, this is a 19th century electrical technology that's caused this to happen. So, um, but yeah, this last chapter is, is a little bit of a gothic horror story. It's for the uh, birds. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Good to be a little more. I was like, if you're going to mm-hmm. set all this up, mm-hmm. think through what you're doing. Yeah. Don't just go, oh, you know, it would be cool. <gasps> this. And you know, it would be also cool. <laughs> and they look at it and go, look, look, see if he's going to come out. And there he goes. He doesn't look at him or anything. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, wait. Where's he going to live? He was always worried about money. What's he going to do? What? Hold on. Mm-hmm. I don't. Is he going to carry this dead body around with him all this time? Because, you know, he's the only time he's complete. How can you bury him if he's got a thinking soul or something? I mean, no. Yeah. Finish the story. Mm-hmm. Yep. However, up to that point, well done. <laughs> Very good. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Too fun, too fun. I I did have one other thing though. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since I'm busy, blah 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 blah. <laughs> um. So this story, even with its gothic setting and Tesla and all the stuff, which is magic essentially, real magic done by science, mm-hmm. is kind of along the lines of other things we've talked about, which is. 
what happens when we use machinery or science or technology to do something unnatural? Mm. To use it in ways to make us God, essentially, or to make the choices that God has either already outlined as no, 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 like you do have to die sometime. You're not allowed to just transport into another body. Mm. Um, it's, it's that lack of humility. Yeah, because yeah. it can be done, should it be done? Yeah. And this doesn't, isn't spelling that out necessarily. It's showing the straits that both sets of people get themselves into because they cannot let go. But a little humility would have saved everybody a lot of this stuff. And a lack of humility always requires a price. Yeah. Mm. Which is high. Excellent thought. I would guess the catechism would be against this kind of thing. I, <laughs> if it isn't, they need to fix that section. That <laughs> <laughs> a section, yeah. It, it, it is funny, you know, to mention that, you know, it, it's uh, it's like... You know, uh, when you think about the development of doctrine and things, you know, things come up over time that were, you know, that the the Vatican addresses, you know, because nobody 2,000 years ago would have thought we'd be dealing with what we're dealing with today. But it, yeah. it just, it just, it, it, it's just kind of funny, you know, just thinking about that, you know, it's like, well, what if, what if I come up with a machine <laughs> and duplicate myself? Right. You know, it's like, yeah, let's put that in there. <laughs> this would be encyclical worthy if it became <laughs> common. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We need to come out against this. All right, let's do that. This is the thing um, where you look at something like transhumanism and all the things that people couldn't think about back in the day. Sex change operations, um, Uploading yourself to a computer, doing this Tesla stuff, nanobots, all the things, right? Mm -hmm. And what nobody back in the day, including who wrote the catechism, but even before that, would have recognized is any of these techniques or ideas. But what they would have known is unhappiness, rivalry, lack of identity, obsession, Revenge. All those things are already all the way through the Bible from the very beginning, practically, from yeah. chapter 3 on. Mm. So, what they would have known is you don't turn to all these things to fix your problem with a human solution. Because human solutions aren't going to fix those kind of problems. We can help with medicine. We can do other things. But those are sicknesses of the soul. Mm-hmm. And so, what you really need is for real out-of-the-box thinking, what you need is Jesus and his resurrection. Because mm-hmm. when he comes back, he is so changed, he can walk through walls. Yeah. Um, he could just disappear when he's breaking bread after the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he does all these things. And so what Pope Benedict pointed out in Jesus of Nazareth Holy Week is that this is the next phase of humanity the evolutionary leap that God intended all along, but that human stubbornness, pride, and sin threw off track. So what he says is, Jesus' resurrection was about breaking out into an entirely new form of life, into a life that is no longer subject to the law of dying and becoming, but lies beyond it, a life that opens up a new dimension of human experience, 
Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus is not an isolated event that we could set aside as something limited to the past, but it constitutes an evolutionary leap that affects everyone and that opens up a future, a new kind of future for mankind. Indeed, matter itself is remolded into a new type of reality, opening up a dimension that affects us all, creating for all of us a new space of life, a new space of being in union with God. Hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And Love so that. this, yeah, that I mean, I read that and was like, you know, what a thinker. What mm-hmm. I mean, I just love his writing so much. And but it's the thing of going, all of this striving and obsession and revenge and unhappiness and triumph. All these things are exactly what he was writing about. It's the problems that you cannot solve yourself. And this book, although an exciting story, demonstrates that very thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, sure does. But he yep. doesn't have an answer, and that's why not. Mm-hmm. First of all, he didn't stop to think through. You know, the, If he's going to have that ending, he just needs to finish up the details. Yeah. But, um, but the other thing is, it kind of actually works from a Christian point of view, because none of these people will ever be able to answer these problems. Hmm. They're not thinking the right way. That's right. That's right. Yep. What great thoughts. Yep. You got me thinking over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Um, Just amazing. I wouldn't have thought of Mm -hmm. that if we hadn't been talking. So again, that's the value, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to, just kind of talk about stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, um, you were saying before the prestige, uh, I was looking up, somebody was explaining the prestige is the payoff. Mm-hmm. The third act of any magic trick. Yeah, yeah. First is the pledge, where they show you something ordinary like a dove. Second is the turn, where they take the dove and make it do something extraordinary like disappear. And then is the prestige, where the dove shows up again somewhere else. Yeah, right. So yeah. I myself those, was going, what? <laughs> Prestige. <laughs> and those empty shells are called the prestigious, you know, in the book. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. The unexpected turn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I mean the, yeah. Yeah. The final thing. The right. payoff. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thanks yeah. for reading this book. I'm glad you got no. through it okay and yeah, all that no, no. stuff. It was, yeah, it was a good story and it That's was well great. told. Mm-hmm. And, I did um, like the way it was written. Mm-hmm. Um, very mm-hmm. much, you know, uh, I think the author nailed that. That was good stuff. Yeah. You feel like he kind of read some of those older books or just knew them anyway. So he could kind of fall into that style a little more. Yeah. He did yeah. a good job. Yeah. Really good. Have you read anything else by him? I, I haven't either. Yep. I was just curious. Yeah. I think this is his big one. Mm-hmm. He had a string of books and I think this might've been the last one he wrote. I know Before he's still he he's still busy. Oh, is he's he still, still alive? Yeah, oh, he's okay. still writing then away. Never mind. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. In fact, he's got mind. a brand new one coming out called Expect Me Tomorrow. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'm in, afraid it, of it. in it uh, in the description he says um to anyone who has read some of my past books, I should mention that this time there are two sets of identical twins, but no one muddles <laughs> them up and none of them is a magician. <laughs> Okay. All right, then. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I wonder if he's dealing with that problem that uh, Stephen King has with The Stand, where he's like, I've written a lot of other books since then, by the way. (laughs) Why does people, why do people only talk about that one, you know? And then, Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I wonder if that's the case with this. This is yeah. just uh, the one that everybody remembers. Yeah, of course, the movie know. would have helped. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. No, it was it was a very interesting book. I would never have read it. He did a really good job. I he is not to blame for the fact that I was suddenly like, ah, oh, hmm. yeah, I don't care about magic. I'd never thought about it one way or the other. Yeah, still <laughs> okay. a fan. I still still enjoy a good trick. Um, yeah. Magicians can think, be amazing. Well, you mentioned, uh, is it Teller and Penn? Yeah, Penn and, and Teller, Teller, yeah. Okay, this is how little I follow it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, if there's a good patter, then I can enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Because it's just part of the bigger show. Yeah, absolutely. But, and, yeah. yeah. He, he to says do it the way like, they were. Yeah. Yeah. He says, it's hard to think critically if you're laughing. Yeah. So, he says, we often follow a secret move immediately with a joke. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a viewer only has so much attention to give, right? So yeah. if he's laughing, his mind's too busy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I love that that he talked about. Uh, you know, he talks about deception. I'm just looking through this really quick. Um, but he basically says, okay, he says, um, yeah, we can close with this. Um, he says, magic is an art. It's capable of of beauty as music, painting, or poetry. But at the core of every trick is a cold cognitive experiment in perception. Does the trick fool the audience? A magician's data sample spans centuries, and his experiments have been replicated often enough to constitute near certainty. Neuroscientists, well-intentioned as they are, are gathering soil samples from the foot of a mountain that magicians have mapped and mined for centuries. (laughs) MRI machines are awesome, but if you want to learn the psychology of magic, you better off with Cub Scouts and hard candy. <laughs> <laughs> that so, is great. Yeah, it yeah. is really great. It so. is. Well, and it's also acknowledging there's something intangible going on that science can't nail everything down. Yeah. And that's okay. Both mm-hmm. things go together, you yeah, know. You bet. And that's where you wind up at truth. There's facts. Mm-hmm. And there's something else that's intangible, and yeah. it all is truth. For sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Love it. I like Good it. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So what is next up for us is hmm. another pair, Thelma and Louise. And they're not, oh. they're not twins. <laughs> <laughs> are not twins. Yeah. But it's certainly a moment for contrasting and comparing when you're yes. watching that movie. Well, good. Yes. I haven't seen that movie yeah. for a long time, so I'm looking oh, forward my to gosh. it. Yeah. Yes, I yep. I think uh, there's so much to talk about in that movie. Very so, good, um, very good. Plus, ladies, Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> that poor man again. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really sad for him. Isn't it? <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, okay. have a great one, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yes, have a good couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.